0: Talk is about to begin.
1: Hey, 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 come on in. Welcome back to a Monday Buckeye Talk. Doug Lamaris and Nathan Beard are getting up a little late. It's not really late because on, on road games, we decide we're going to record Monday morning, not make ourselves try to drive back and be crazy and record on Sunday. So there are uh, two more road games left after this. The Northwestern is up next for Ohio State. That's a road game. We'll record that Monday morning. Then it's home Indiana. We'll record that Sunday. Get it up early Monday. Then it's at Maryland, so that one will be recorded Monday morning. And then uh, what's the last one? God, I can't even think. I, I think we play Rutgers. That again. one. That one will just so like home I just think scared. we'll we'll just do like a twenty four hour straight like podcast telethon from the moment the Ohio State Michigan game ends, and we'll just go for twenty four straight hours because it'll either be Ohio State fans wanting to exult in victory or Ohio State fans. Wanting to do the opposite of that. And either of them probably requires a 24-hour podcast. Okay, here's what we're going to do on this version of what we do in the Monday show. We are going to really dive into something about Ohio State, which is the run game. Nathan watched every run play, really dove in. I watched every run play and half dove in because I can't dive. Can you dive? Can you put your body so that you're – I think I've talked about this in the pod before. I can't make like my head and my pointy arms go into a body of water ahead of the rest of my body. Everything that I would do, if I if I raise my arms over my head and bend over like a person about to dive, I still wind up with my feet hitting the water first because I cannot psychologically get myself to like flip my leg. I think I could physically. My brain won't allow it. It's too fearful of what's going to happen to my head.
0: So to paraphrase the old Saturday night live sketch about the uh, male synchronized swimming or Martin Shorty's is wearing the life vest because I'm not a strong swimmer. Um, I am not a strong swimmer, so I could execute the most flawless dive in the history of diving and it would be the last one because I would just sink <laughs> to the bottom.
1: <laughs> okay, that's good. So we can combine It'd be that. quite
0: a walk-off. It'd be I a off I,
1: I can swim, but I can't dive. You can die, but it'd be the last thing you ever do. All right. So we have you dove in and then sank to the bottom with the run game. And I only have dove in because, and I yeah. can still talk about it. Just I went in feet first. So we're going to do that. And then guess what? The playoff rankings come out Tuesday night. So we're going to look at a little bit just like I don't know that anybody should be super fired up or concerned about anything. I do think, Nathan, that every time you get the first reveal of the committee rankings, the interesting thing is you want to start to understand how that group thinks because they can say they have parameters, but every group of 13 people thinks a little bit differently. And the only rankings that matter are the last ones. But the second most important rankings, I think, are the first ones because you, you get an idea. You get a general <laughs> thing of like, oh, all right, so TCU and Clemson are both undefeated. Maybe we out in the world think this, but man, they have Clemson second. OK, they think that. Or, oh, we think Michigan's good out in the world, but they played a soft schedule. What do they think of Michigan? Oh, they have Michigan sixth. Interesting. They're penalizing them for those early games even more than we thought. Or Michigan second, and they're penalizing them less than we thought. Like all those things. We'll talk about that a little bit later. But do you agree that you're curious about the initial rankings?
0: Yeah, because this is an interesting cluster of teams. We're getting pretty far in now where you still got, what, seven undefeated power five teams, I think, and then Alabama on the periphery of that with one loss and some other interesting teams like Oregon with one loss. But again, just among those undefeated teams, there's a an interesting like contrast of resume where you've got some teams yeah. like Clemson or maybe even Michigan who have more quote-unquote good wins and then someone like Ohio State who doesn't hadn't had as many good wins but was blowing people off the field. So which one do they value more at this point?
1: And obviously, you know, we're going to get Ohio State-Michigan against each other, so we'll figure that out. And we're getting Georgia-Tennessee this week, so we'll figure that out. But I do think we'll also get an indication of how much the losers of those those two games may or may not have a shot to get in as an 11-1 and team that does not make a conference championship game. So we'll, you know, we'll talk about all this stuff, but we want to dive in first on the run game. And, Nathan, you broke everything down, and we're going to start with the bubble screens, which are really part of the run game. Um, It's... They're often blocked. Sometimes there are RPOs. I mean, they're often blocked as a run play. And the idea is, I mean, it is a run play as Ryan Day thinks about it. It's a run play because it's quick and you rely on blocking. And it's just, it's it's not that much different than a toss or a sweep, right? It's just that you're trying to get um, people out and and force the defense to defend horizontally. And, and Ryan Day did talk about that after the game. Nathan, we talked about it on the post game pod. He said there's value in doing that just to make the defense run. So they had to run. So that was good. But most of the time, then when they ran, then they tackled the Ohio State player with the ball. So then I guess it's good for the defense. So how many bubbles, bubble screens did they run against Penn State by your account?
0: So there was one that was run and run more or less effectively that was negated because it only got four yards and Penn State was offsides. So they took the penalty. So take that one off the board. But that would have been one in their favor. And I'm bringing that up because there were five others that they ran. And both for the bubbles and the conventional runs, I sort of broke this down between uh, successful plays and failed plays. And of the five that they ran, one was successful. It gained four yards in addition to the one that didn't. So one that gained four yards and four failures. So an 80% fail rate. And anything you do against an opponent that good and you do it that many times and fail 80% of the time is detrimental to your game plan. It's detrimental to your chances of winning the game.
1: So in rewatching those, my half dive, my feet first dive, it's, it's a little hard. It's interesting here because I think if you were assigning like execution problems, I think there's real questions about why was Ryan Day doing it? And I think those are all reasonable and important, very important. But once you decide to do it, if you look at why they weren't executed, you wind up, I think, looking at some of Ohio State's best players who almost everything else they did in the game, they executed incredibly well. But the things they were asked to do in those bubble screens, they did not do incredibly well, and it cost them there. So it's like, oh, man, I don't know. They got to bench that guy. It's like, no, like, what? No, like a guy didn't make a block on a bubble screen. And then he destroyed Penn state every other well, time he was involved in a
0: play. Yeah. It's a little hard to wrap your head around that. Yeah. He, some of them didn't make multiple blocks on bubble screens. Listen, the bubble screens worked as long as they were throwing the ball to someone other than Emeka Abuka, So Emeka Abuka could block. So that's what worked on the two that worked, including the one that was negated by a penalty when they threw to him and expected I mean, why? let's just say their names. It was like Kate Stover did not do a good job blocking on multiple bubble screens. Um, Fleming got blown up on multiple bubble screens, like multiple guys who are really and, good Marvin, And, and Marvin, Marvin, I think yeah. on
1: the first one, the first yeah. one that failed was Marvin the block.
0: Yep. Yeah. Um, and what looked like in real time, and, and there was some of this too, and I want to make sure that up front, we give some credit to Penn State for not every opponent uh, anticipates plays this well has schemed this well, and physically brings this level of physicality, whatever. So give Penn State credit for that. But Ohio State didn't match it. Ohio State just lost that that those one-on-one battles between guys and the guy they were supposed to block. And what looked like in real time of maybe Penn State just like jumping some things was, I mean, there were guys there to block it who just didn't block.
1: So I, I want to throw out one point here because we talked about this a lot on the post game pod. And I had just missed it. I had missed it in the game. And it was pointed out by a couple people on that. I saw text and Twitter. They did run a fake bubble. They ran a fake bubble with four and a half minutes left in the first half with those three guys trips to the left side. Mm -hmm. And they had um, Julian Fleming act like he was going to catch the bubble. And they had Marvin Harrison Jr. block and they had Emeka Egbuka as the inside receiver of the trips left on that play, and he released and ran a route down the field, and Keaton Ellis, the safety who had Emeka on that play, I think there are a lot of safeties that Emeka was would have run just right by him. But he was able to get a hand on Egbuka as he ran past, and it slowed him down a tiny bit, and the result was... CJ overthrew a Mecca mm-hmm. in the end zone. So it was that end zone shot from about the 24 yard line or so, but it was exactly that. It was like the thing they had been setting up and it was a good shot. But even that like Penn state defended well, because even because, because the, the safety started to come down because they were attacking all that aggressively. And the one outside corner who is, who's the guy who's on Julian there, he's attacking that aggressively. That's his responsibility. but like they almost they almost got him, but even Penn State played that well. So I did like we were like why didn't they ever run a fake bubble? They did and it just I didn't quite work. So when you look at that and and I do think I realized again in the moment talking to some people after the game when I wrote about like the great blockade Stover uh, made on great double block he made on Trevon Henderson's touchdown run, they were talking about some blocks he missed in the first half. It was those blocks. Yeah. Like I didn't necessarily know in the moment like exactly cuz you're trying to watch everything and we're texting him and we're writing. Right. It was those blocks. That, the, that they were talking about, well, he missed some in the first half, and then he made a great one in the second half. So in that moment – so we know when they do that a lot, they like to split – they've always split the tight ends out like that, Nathan. They don't – they had some formations on Saturday. Stephen was excited, justifiably, that they put four real receivers in the game, and they brought in Xavier Johnson as a fourth receiver. But often when they go empty, when they go four wide, it's just you split out the back or you split out the tight end. So Cade Stover was split out a lot like that, and you could see, again, the person was talking about it, he missed his – he got off on his angles. He wound up on some of those wide ones. He winds up straight on the guy he's trying to block, which allows that guy to almost just make make a cut around him. And if he stays a little more angled and he can attack him from the side and drive him, you, you can see how he got off on that. But like to me also, like as what a physical uh, great football player Cade Stover is, that probably isn't what he does best. And like the one that Marvin missed, it's like, oh man, Marvin Harrison missed that block. It's like, well, what? I mean, he could yeah, have yeah. had forty catches if you wanted him to have forty catches. Kind of not his thing. You said the problem was they were throwing to a Mecca When it, it, are you saying that Amecha's a the best blocker? And then the other thing is like, well, we've seen times where they Ohio State has had great blocking receivers. And so part of me was like, I don't know. Are they not great blocking receivers? And so like, don't ask them to do the one thing they're not as good at. I don't know. What was your conclusion about the failed bubble screen? Stop it.
0: Just do it a little bit differently. What's the solution? Well, here's the thing. Bubble screens in and of themselves are not a bad offensive play. Not only do we have many years of Ohio State football to back that up. You know who ran bubble screens really well on Saturday? Freaking Penn State, like (laughs) that play, that 58 yard touchdown uh, to Washington early in the game. That wasn't really a bubble screen, but it wasn't that far off of that. And it was again, Penn State was meeting guys out on the edge, out on the perimeter and blowing up blocks and tackling guys. And Ohio State wasn't. Ohio State like blew that opportunity. So I really think if if you're going to say, well, Ohio State just can't block bubble screens. So you got to take that off the table. I don't I don't think that's the answer. I think that this is a the same way that we would have said last year coming out of the Michigan game and did like hey that that this this offensive line has to block better in the run game. I think these guys on the perimeter have to block better than this. Like
1: what does that mean? Like just tell Cade part is of your, your answer just but just tell Cade Stover and Marvin Harrison Judah to block better? Like that that's it?
0: Yeah. I mean what 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 is the other option?
1: Don't put the. I, I guess the other option is because the one thing was the three that failed the worst, which were the three to a mecca, which were a, for a combined negative yardage. Right.
0: Well, you're yeah, all trips.
1: trips. Yeah. We're all trips. So it's throw to a mecca with two guys blocking, which winds up like you start losing the numbers game there and then you need two guys to make blocks.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: And then the ones that failed slightly less were not trips, it was just two receivers. Yeah. And like you said, if it's, if it's a mecca making one block, you're not trying to get two guys to make a block. And the one guy who has to make a block is a Mecca. And I think they threw one to Marvin and one to Julian. And those worked at least slightly better. And it still winds up in a spot. Cause if you only have two guys out there, it's like, all right, we got to, one guy's got to make a block and then you got to make the other guy miss. And then that's, that's what the game is. I do. They got away from the throwing it to the, to the trips because that was a failure because that could be even if one guy makes the block, if the other guy – does, and they they were like not going two for two. There was no chance they were going to go two for two on those blocks. So they at least they made that adjustment. Maybe let's yeah. throw out the – let's throw it when you have three receivers on the same side.
0: Well, and again, I think – and I said this after the game was we were just talking about it, how it just seemed like Penn State knew those were coming. And I think you're right that – and and the people who pointed that out about the play at the end of the first half or late in the first half, that it was all getting – you're fine to some extent that Penn state is going to sell out when they read that because you're supposed to hit them with that touchdown pass later. And it just didn't happen. So there is some of that balance. And I do think that some of the, there may be some disguising that can also happen here too. You want to keep the bubble screen in your arsenal, but maybe it is becoming, maybe you've put too many tendencies on film that are getting read, and all in the, all in the, the, the search for that one time and hoping it works. So maybe there's some, there's a way to, you bring a guy in motion as the third guy coming across. And now you do have two blockers and you're throwing to him. Like, I don't think that's something they try. I'm just spitballing, but like, there may be a way to, to disguise this play, this option within the offense better than they were disguising it here.
1: Yeah. And, and there's a decent chunk of it that Penn state defended it will.
0: That I do think you have to give Penn State credit because I think if you were to go back and look on film, I bet there you're going to find times where Ohio State got like nine yards on a bubble screen against Arkansas State or whatever. And we thought, oh, that's a good little that's a good little play. But actually, the blocking maybe not wasn't any better that time, but the blocking the bad blocking was against a an inferior player to who Penn State was putting on the field on Saturday.
1: And I think we talked about this postgame. It's just a reminder. You know, yards per attempt for C.J. Stroud, he was leading the nation going into last week. It's over 10. So it's like every time you throw the ball, there's an expect. What's the expectation level for Ohio State football? 10. Every time you throw the ball, what gets counted as a throw? And then if you run the ball, Ohio State, I think, is up there in yards per carry. And it's like five is good. But I do think you have to think of those bubble screens. The goal is not 10. The goal is not 8. The goal is not 7. If you, if you think, again, Correct. it's like 4 or 5 is effective, and, and you just have to judge it by that standard. Now, that doesn't mean negative 2. doesn't mean 0 is okay. Exactly. Exactly. But you, just as a fan, you have to keep in your mind that's a run play, and if you run it on first down and you get 4 yards and it's now 2nd and 6, that's that's Okay. Because if you just handed it off inside to Travion Henderson and he got four yards, you wouldn't throw off your hat and, you know, kick your TV about a four-yard run. But maybe there's an instinct
0: to do that about a pass. So just a reminder, right, Nathan? Just, like, make sure you have it in the right context. And I don't like to sometimes use terms like fail because, as a wise man once said, the other guys practice too. And I thought Penn State, again, kind of brought it on Saturday. but. So, I, you know, four yards on a bubble screen, that counts as a win to me. That counts as it worked. And the other four were like zero or minus two. Like, they were all like that. And the reason why this is important, to go back to the discussion we had after the game Saturday, is if you're doing this in the run game, we're going to talk about the conventional runs in a second. It just amplifies the pressure on all those passing plays. I know that he's averaging 10 yards a play. But I think the average third down distance that Ohio State had on Saturday was like 7.6 that's just very uncharacteristic for this team. Yeah. And when you're playing the best secondary, they're going to play all year. That's how you're on the precipice of a loss in the fourth quarter.
1: Yeah. Okay, let's Let's. we're going to we're going to just dip over to the national conversation re- very briefly before we come back to dig in on the rest of the run game. Um if you're not someone who just like loves 45 minutes of run game talk, I want to I want to throw you a bone here. Do you think do you think Ohio State will be number one in the first committee rankings. Nathan, I th- do not. You do not. Do you think Georgia will be number one, or do you think Tennessee will be number one? I suspect
0: Tennessee will be number one.
1: Which would be like kind of, kind of committee esque, not in a bad way. That just like, hey, right. Tennessee has never been number one the whole year, but now in the only group that matters, they're going to be number one. So l- let me. I-, I did run through, and this is not. This is not the committee. This is the old way. But all those BCS computer ratings that they used back in the day as part of yeah. the BCS formula when it was a third, the Harris poll, a third, the coach's poll, and one third, six different computer polls, they all still exist. So I just glanced at them very, very quickly. Um,
0: I want one of them had Ohio oh.
1: State one. I was
0: going to go say ahead. something real quick. Number one, it's funny that you're mentioning this because I've been told that my supposedly radical ap ballot each week actually resembles the and i don't look at it it resembles this bcs formula pretty closely people have told me but number two um i have not i write a thing every tuesday morning once the pairings start coming out to like predict the pairings i have not written that yet so i just said i think tennessee would be number one but if i write something else at the end of this conversation that's why
1: okay maybe you'll have investigated further yeah maybe it'll change my mind too So I'm looking at, so Billingsley, Ohio State 1, that's like, that's the name of the computer guy. If you, if you're a computer guy and you make up a computer system, you get to name it after yourself, which is why this originally was called Doug Talk. Billingsley, Ohio State 1, Tennessee 2, Clemson 3, TCU 4, Georgia 5, Michigan 6, Bama 7. So that is interesting because it's Ohio State 1st, ahead of Tennessee, and then the two like... Not sure what we think of those undefeated teams, both ahead of the SEC teams. So I thought that was interesting. Cooley, Georgia 1, Clemson 2, TCU 3, Ohio State 4, Tennessee 5, Michigan 6, Bama 7. So that's Georgia at the front of the pack. Then the two teams we're not so sure about. Then Ohio State, but Ohio State still had it ahead of Tennessee. So Ohio State ahead of Tennessee in both of those. One there, 1-2. One, the other one there, 4-5. Massey, Ohio State 1, Georgia 2, Tennessee 3, Bama 4, Michigan 5, then Clemson TCU. That may be more kind of in line with poll thinking, right? Ohio State at the top, then Georgia, Tennessee. Sagarin, Ohio State 1, Bama 2, which is one of those wrinkles like, oh, Bama's ahead of Tennessee, which Tennessee beat them. I hate that kind of stuff, but you got to go by your formula. Bama 2, Georgia 3, Tennessee 4, Michigan 5. So in all four of those, Ohio State is ahead of Tennessee. And overall in those four, t- Ohio State is first three times and fourth once. And by the Sagarin schedule strength, and you can find your schedule strength of choice, there is a schedule strength formula that the committee uses. It is proprietary. It is not the schedule strength that you and I would find from various groups out on the internet. Schedule strength. Bama 18 overall in the country, 18th mm-hmm. toughest schedule. Ohio State 29th. Tennessee, 47th, Georgia, 50th, Michigan, 89th. So the two takeaways I took from those groups is no matter how they have them, they kind of have Ohio State ahead of Tennessee in all of them. And as much as you might look at Ohio State's schedule strength and say, hey, Notre Dame, Wisconsin, Iowa, Michigan State, four teams that were all thought to be better than they turned out to be, that their preseason ranking is higher than their current ranking, you would look at that and say, mm, "Maybe they're in trouble with their schedule strength." Ohio State's still better than all the undefeated teams. Yeah, so like and their schedule strength is still ahead of Tennessee and Georgia, so and Michigan.
0: And I hope we're far enough into the season. Tishu talks about this a lot on the betting pod that it's it's not based on record usually that strength of schedule. It's usually based on whatever proprietary formula, the makeup of the teams and how they win and all that stuff, right? So it's not just their one loss record. But there's a point in the year where all that previous data is getting weeded out and it's just this year's data so that's going to vary from computer ranking to computer ranking but it's it's interesting that it's so consistent across the board
1: i i didn't have like a game control thing that i could find i don't know if there's a game control metric out there the one thing nathan and talking yeah, about game con- which the committee has used at times um like a game like penn state's not going to help their game control now cuz you can look at it again as we talked about in the post game pod michigan played penn state very close for the first half, and then Michigan's explosion came in the third quarter. Ohio State's explosion didn't come until the final 10 minutes. They both were offensive and, frankly, defensive total game explosions that took a close game and turned it into a blowout, but Michigan's happened sooner. So, like, in a direct head-to-head comparison there, Michigan would have an edge. Um, I think Michigan just generally, they didn't have an easy time with Iowa, right? But maybe you would judge michigan's win over iowa i don't i don't know if you're I, trying to judge you have two head to head comparisons here with iowa and penn state for michigan and ohio state and it, my inkling is maybe the head to heads lean slightly michigan in committee thinking i'm just is would that be right or
0: wrong in your mind i don't know michigan was at iowa ohio state was at penn state that is a factor i think the committee looks at i think the michigan game i could be wrong for about sure. this I think the Michigan game might have been like twenty-seven nothing in the fourth quarter, and then they won like twenty-seven thirteen, something like that against Iowa, something along those lines. Yeah. So, um, so was that like more impressive than beating them fifty-four to ten? I I don't think so. But it's right. So I I think that the committee again, the one thing the committee will come back to is yes, those are each individual data point, but each one of them doesn't maybe matter more than the others and one thing I'm sort of talking myself into maybe I'm jumping ahead to your to your next point here but you know OSU showing up so highly across the board in like all of those rankings here's one thing I do know I'm not sure who will be number one this week I absolutely know it's one of two teams next week it's whoever wins the Tennessee Georgia game so do you make Ohio State the one team the number one team for this first one because then whoever wins Tennessee Georgia next week, everyone, including I think everybody who follows Ohio State, I would hope, would say, well, yeah, like that's the number one team. Especially if Tennessee wins, and now you've beaten Alabama and Georgia in the same season. I think that's yeah. your number one team.
1: And, and I do think the other thing we've talked about this a lot: the committee likes balance, and I'm not sure yep. that they're that's rational. Because why? Because I do think so. Because always one of those that they just kind of like it. I think they like you if you if you win like. 35 to 14 and they like that better than if you win 17 nothing and they like that better than if you win 60 to 40 so in terms of balance ohio state is is far more balanced than tennessee sure so you look at the f plus ratings from football outsiders ohio state's first tennessee's fifth overall it's ohio state georgia alabama michigan tennessee overall but breaking it on sides of the ball ohio state is first in offense and fifth in defense right now Georgia is first in defense and fourth in offense. Alabama is third in defense and sixth in offense. Michigan is sixth in defense and ninth in offense. So Nathan, the four best teams are all top 10 in both. Tennessee is second in offense and 43rd in defense. And again, the committee will have their own version of that kind of thing. And I think that will matter. So I do think if you're looking for balance, Tennessee's not your answer. Now, if you're looking for strength of schedule and dominance and win when it matters and and top 25 wins and top 10 wins and great wins, if they beat Georgia, like you said, a week from now, and they're going to hang Bama and Georgia. Nobody can match that. But I do think – I actually think for now, my guess is Ohio State is number one. But the only thing that I would advise people on, if Ohio State's third and it's like Michigan, Tennessee, Ohio State, it's okay. Like, it's okay because we're going to work it out on the field. This is all a guide. It's all a guide. It's all a guide. So the thing that will matter most, I think, is when you try to look at Georgia, Tennessee, and you try to look at Ohio State, Michigan, those two groups of teams, you're trying to look at the losers of those head-to-head matchups. What are the current rankings and the way they are thinking? What does that tell us about if you lose, can you get in? And how does that compare? Because and I do think, like wherever TCU and Clemson are, Nathan, if you wind up with undefeated champs in the Big Twelve and the ACC, they're both in. So then you're not that that fourth team is not getting in. Then our playoff is going to be undefeated Big Twelve champ, undefeated Clemson. I mean, undefeated. Well, undefeated Clemson as the ACC champ and the SEC champ and the Big Ten champ in whatever form that takes. Right. That's it. That's what the playoff is. But if Clemson and or TCU stumble in the regular season and then win and are one loss conference champ that you want to, it's just positioning it's early race positioning for if something goes wrong after you have to pit, you have to get an extra set of tires because something went wrong, right? You got to go in like that. Where are you now? What's your lead? So don't freak out. Don't freak out. Don't freak out. Don't throw stuff at your TV. But my guess is Ohio state number one. And I, and I do think, I think think actually, I think actually there might be a chance. There might be a chance that it's Ohio state one, Michigan two. I would, I would not be flabbergasted if it's two big, big 10 teams at the top, because Georgia is a very similar team, but has also just played some, as you said, on the post game pod, the close game with Missouri, some kind of, and then Tennessee's unbalanced, and then TCU and Clemson, just like kind of if you look at them, they've they've had some close calls, right? They've had some tough games. They played, they've beaten good opponents, but they've had some close calls. So I think my – I think the balance is swinging me on Tennessee. I think Tennessee is really good. This is not me. I think Tennessee yeah. could win the national championship I, because I think, again, like the whole – like their offense is so good and Hendon Hooker is so good. My guess will be – what's my guess? Well, let's make ourselves – I mean, that's what they listen for. So they can tune back in and say, oh, these guys were wrong. This (laughs) will be my guess. Top four. My guess is Ohio State one, Michigan two, Georgia three, Tennessee four is my guess. What's your guess as we sit here and you reserve the right to change your mind as you do more research before you write your post?
0: I think I'm I think I might swing around to Ohio State being number one now, too. But with the caveat of what I said before, that I think the Tennessee Georgia winner, even if it's 52 to 49 again, I think that team's number one in the second one. Um, I think you're right. And so I would probably put Ohio State one, Tennessee two. The problem with Georgia is as much as they have looked a little iffy at times, they actually, I mean, as far as like going up against a good team and then just flattening them, they've done that a couple times this year, whether it was Oregon, I know it was the first game of the year, It, It one of those just like weird games. I think no one, I don't think anyone thinks maybe that Georgia is actually 45 points better than Oregon at this point, but. But maybe they are which so yeah, those so that's the scary part and then like south carolina which is kind of an okay team they completely blew them off the field they've pulverized some other people so i might lean georgia third here's the issue with michigan it's from just the strength of schedule for them is so bad yeah but but so like compare that like syracuse is beaten or i'm sorry clemson is beaten now syracuse nc state at wake forest you can even throw in at florida state which is kind of like a a decent team that just hasn't been able to beat enough people. And in TCU one at SMU, which is a, one of the better like power five non-conference wins of the year. Really? Like a lot of times you don't even go on the road to play teams like SMU from power five schools uh, at Kansas, which is not as good as people thought they were. And then Oklahoma state and Kansas state, like so other teams that have been legitimately like top 10, 12 caliber, like in terms of who has actually beaten people. So Michigan's best win is the Penn state win at home and then it's like maryland by a touchdown at iowa from from just quality of wins they're not there but in terms of performance metrics they are there so i really don't know what to do with that fourth spot right now like my gut tells me they might go
1: you're almost talking me into changing my rankings too because i do think the schedule strength matters the two best wins for the best teams are tennessee over bama and georgia destroying yeah. Oregon when now yeah. Oregon looks like a really good team right and Ohio State and Michigan don't have wins that can match that so I do there is a there's some dissonance here with with best wins quality of overall wins again like you rank your three best wins and and Ohio State and Michigan because of well Michigan because the way it canceled its preseason it canceled its non-conference game with UCLA that they were supposed to play this year they canceled a couple of years ago and so their non-conference stunk and then both Ohio State and Michigan have suffered kind of by like other you know, yes. Michigan State. If Michigan State was a top twenty team, but both Ohio State and Michigan would have fast Michigan State, and that's not much different than beating Indiana this year, the way Michigan State has played. So now I really feel like I could be wrong because like, I do think when you compare like Michigan and Georgia, you just well, look at where's Michigan's forty nine nothing right win over a top
0: ten team, and it's not there. Right, and uh, but I think so. I actually I, I think Georgia would be in the, the top three. I think they also, as much as they don't want to admit it, they can be influenced sometimes by, oh, it's a defending national champion. They haven't lost crap like that. But I, the, the Michigan-Clemson-TCU comparison is tricky because, again, those other teams have beaten more good teams, but Michigan is the one that the performance metrics tell you is better. So I might pick Michigan right now. Maybe they give them a little bit of a nudge because they're a, a playoff team from last year that that hasn't still lost yet i still, I think the OSU case for number one though, is that, and I have brought this up before is why I keep voting them number one in the AP poll, even though all those things are true from a schedule standpoint about all these other teams are talking about that are equally undefeated, but like which team has looked the least beatable this year? Ohio State has looked like truly beatable like once. And it was when they were with 10 minutes to go in the fourth quarter on the road against a top 15 caliber team, like tough building to play in my building arena <laughs> stadium like that's and I think the committee will say that's like and then then compare that to the other teams you're thinking about putting at number one like Tennessee which had to think like, go to overtime to beat Pittsburgh on the road which yeah. is okay and like Georgia again the Missouri game uh the Kent State game they were never like in danger of losing that game but they sure didn't look like the best team in the country that day and you can argue in the one moment that Ohio State looked the most fragile, it then looked like the number one team in the country, by the way, handled that situation. So I might be, I think, like I said, like the caveat I gave, I may have just, just in the span of these few minutes, talked myself into Ohio State being the number one team tonight, but it's going to be short-lived because whoever wins Tennessee, Georgia will be number one. And I think deserves to be number one. By the way, F-plus rankings on a Football Outsiders, Clemson is
1: ninth. 24th in offense, 13th in defense, right. and TCU is 15th, 10th in offense and 51st in defense. And again, those ratings actually like take like recruiting and stuff like that into, into account a little bit, which like the committee is not doing. So, it's kind of like a strength of team, you know, in addition to strength of record um and that kind of stuff. So, in the end, I think Ohio State will be number 1, but we'll have an interesting conversation about it this week. We we'll, we don't know. Because the bottom line is we figured out that the committee has things written down. It's like an old Harry Potter book. I think if you go in the meeting, it has like an old cover made of a, of a tree, of an of a old rotten tree. And then you, you, you pull the cover and it has like, it's all in calligraphy. Bill Hancock, the guy who's in charge, like the media guy in charge of the playoff committee. I think he, they made him get learn calligraphy. And they wrote down all the bylaws and there's a lot of yees. There's a lot of yees in there ye's and thou's thou shalt, right all that kind of stuff and then 13 people get in the room and they're like i don't know high state seems pretty good so then that's how you do it so you just you don't know how those 13 people are going to interact and who's going to have the loudest voice and they're so as not shahan and i talked about this shahan did the mock playoff committee this year we talked about on the college football survivor show i did it four or five years ago there's so much information nathan it's information overload and you wind up Choosing the information that means the most to you, and when that information is in conflict—game control versus strength of schedule versus best wins—then there's no right or wrong answer. It's like a personal choice, and you don't know. Maybe these seven people value this more, and these six people value this more, and it's a one-vote difference, and that's why Tennessee's ahead of
0: Ohio State, run So, I'm just trying awesome. to imagine. But again, I think it's the best you can do. Yeah, I'm trying to imagine you being at the the mock committee, and they pull out the Harry Potter book, and you're like, "I call Voldemort." Whoever whoever the villains are, I don't watch. I don't watch Harry Potter. Yeah, or read it. No,
1: I watched the first Harry Potter movie, and there was like a thing that's like the big reveal, and I was like, "What? That's the thing." And I tried to read like when my kids were younger, I was reading the first book with my oldest daughter, and we were reading it together, and then we were going to watch the first movie. And the thing in the first book—that's the thing. I was like, "All right, I'm out. I don't that thing to me is stupid." And then I think I missed out because. That was the first book she wrote, and it's like you get better when you do something. Mm-hmm. So her the books got better and I think the plots got better and more complex. And so I probably should go back and try to revisit them because obviously, I mean it's a you know, it's a worldwide phenomenon.
0: Yeah. So I think I did it's probably not watch, bad. But I think I did watch the know. first movie at some point. I think I have seen the first movie, but have not read the books, had no frame of reference for it. So maybe about giving it a shot. I got a little kid now. Maybe he'll want to hear about Harry Potter someday. I mean, I do think, because it
1: is, because I think the the genius of it, right, is that I think the level of the book, the writing gets more mature as they went. Mm -hmm. So it's, it's like if you start reading the books when you're eight or nine or 10, or I don't know when kids start, then like as you go along, by the time you read the next book when you're 11 and the next book when you're 12 and the next, I guess kids are also capable of reading more than one book a year, but the books grow with you. But I do think parents have had a great experience. I tried it. I think my... Sister and brother-in-law have done it with with my nephew. Like you kind of read along with them in the beginning. Maybe the first one you read with them and then the kids age into it and they can read it on their own. So don't get up on Harry Potter just because the first thing is kind of like, mm, I don't know about that one because I think it does get better. But also I would love a copy of the playoff committee Harry Potter book, you know, like Barry Alvarez. Like Barry Alvarez is kind of like, well, the actor who just played Hagrid uh, unfortunately passed away. But I like Barry Alvarez. All right. Now we're doing – now we did that. Like the Game of Thrones wasn't enough. Game of Thrones, (laughs) stolen by ESPN, wasn't enough. Now we're doing playoff committee Harry Potter. That's what we do. We just go through the most popular pieces of pop culture and shoehorn it into our coverage of college football the best way we can to glom on to the success of that. That's what we do. If you have something good, that's why we talk about like canes. If you have something good, we'll glom on. Buckeye talk. When we come back, we'll get more into the run game after this. 614-350-3315. 614-350-3315. You guys know it by now. Come on. You guys know it. If you want to be a tech subscriber, honestly, if you haven't started yet, maybe wait, because like I don't know, right? Northwestern Indiana, Maryland, you can probably live without it. Our techs are good. I don't I think we provide interesting information. I sent a picture of like seven-year-old Doug to the tech subscribers before the game on Saturday. Um, you know, Nathan does great tweeting from the news conferences. You get the information in like 15 seconds, right? Steven's dropping some Recruiting stuff in there—it's always good, but is it going to be at its best for Northwestern, Indiana, and Maryland? Probably not. Probably be a little better for Michigan, and then if Ohio State makes the Big Ten championship game, that might be your money time. So if you want to hold off, you can two week free trial get the best two weeks you can get for free. Or if you want to make sure you have it by then, you can try it now. It's fine. Six one four three five zero three three one five. All right, Nathan, did you say nineteen runs
0: that you calculated? Yeah, that were not bubbles. And we're not scrambles. Correct. Yeah. 19 conventional run plays. Hold on. Lost my sheet here. It was 19 conventional run plays. 16 for Henderson. Two for mine Williams before he got hurt. And the one for Mitch Rossi at the end of the game. But nice game for Mitch Rossi, by the way, I thought. Made, made some. Mitch Rossi points. helped, had a block that sealed the
1: edge on the second Trevor Henderson touchdown mm-hmm. run. I thought maybe, maybe Ryan Day's best play call was the pass to Mitch Rossi over the middle of the yep. field where they were in 12 personnel. And it wasn't quite like lining up Ted Ginn Jr. as a tight end against Michigan and hitting him down the field, but it, it was a guy just just a. I mean, I've often said Mitch Rossi is the Ted Ginn Jr. of hybrid fullbacks. But it's like you had a guy lined up on the edge of the line and like you didn't think he was going to do anything, and then he ran a route and he was there was not a Penn State defender within 10 yards of him. It was like 25 yards of free yardage at a time when they could use 25 yards of free yardage. So, like, great job by Mitch Rossi. Like, great play call by Ryan Day. And then, as you said, the carry at the end. So, like, yeah, no, Mitch Rossi, in his role, had a really good game. So, anyway, go ahead to your thing.
0: Well, and obviously, it's funny you mentioned that Ted Ginn thing because there was another run play. As long as we're talking about setting things up, there was another run play where they had Emeka Ibuka in tight And I know they've done that like down on the goal line with the I formation stuff where he's like a single wing. This was like not a a goal line play and they had him in tight. And it would be interesting, like later on, keep that in the back of your mind that maybe they'll he'll release on that play and get a great matchup in the second level. And but on this play, it was a disaster because he was kept back to run block. So I was giving him credit for before for the great run blocking and this play. He was one of the people that did not block. So, again, I broke this down. If a play worked, and the same as with the, the bubble screens, I wasn't I wasn't carrying like a, a five yard play that should have been eight if they'd done something better. Like if you get yards, you get a good any kind of positive yardage. Um, four yards that, that that counts as working for me, and then anything else was a failure. And actually, in this case, there really wasn't much in between. It was a lot of a decent chunk or a lot of nothing. So nineteen plays. And then I broke it down between, like, was a failure because of the O-line, a failure because of the running back, or a failure because of some something else. And I finished out of 19 carries with a 47.3% fail rate. So still almost half of the time, 9 out of 19, where I would call it a failure. Either an offensive lineman was getting blown up, or multiple offensive linemen, or Trevian Henderson, and he was the only one, because mine Williams' two runs were fine. Uh, and Mitch Rossi's one run is fine. So Trevor Henderson, I thought didn't perform his job well enough, or there was some other problem on the play. So, yeah, almost 50% of the time. So combined between the two, that would be what? That would be out of 24, 13 failures out of 24. So over, still over 50% of what Ohio State considers its run game was a failure on, on Saturday against Penn State.
1: So I would still direct people to a piece that's on cleveland.com slash OSU by Lance Reisland, who's a former high school football coach in the Cleveland area, who does a lot of film breakdowns for us on the Browns. He does a film breakdown as a written piece every week. He's also on the Orange and Brown Talk podcast once a week to talk about things from a, from a film perspective. And I would like we're going to have him, I think, dip into Ohio State from time to time when it matters. This was the first piece that he did that. And at some point, then as he keeps dipping in, we'll have Lance on the podcast. He's really smart. He's really personable. He's, he's a great addition to cleveland.com and he, he really knows his stuff. And listen, the three of us here, we're not high school football coaches. We never have pretended to be that. So like the information that a guy like that can bring uh, is really valuable. So he broke down what he thought went wrong as Iowa. And it's a little bit repeated. I think again, here to me, watching it with my eyes, Nathan. It was three things. And these are like the overarching things. And then we can dive in more on your specific research. One is times when there are just too many guys to block. And I thought that happened early. It seemed like there were times when they they maybe didn't get Ohio State's offensive lineman, didn't get off a double team and get to the second level. And there were just linebackers in holes. And that was that. And so whether that's be a good job by the Penn state defensive lineman to sort of tie guys up and allow the linebackers to run free, which is a lot of time what you're trying to do up there. If you're a defensive tackle and you can take two guys and let the linebackers run free, like that is an, that is an all big 10 performance by you on that play. So I thought there were multiple of those early, just too many guys. And the safeties came down again. I think Lance wrote about that against Iowa. There were safeties down in holes at times. And again, Jair Brown, the safety for Penn State, is one of the best safeties in the country. Penn state is like, Turning out safeties right now, man. Jaquan Brisker last year was unbelievable. High draft pick, Jair Brown right now is unbelievable. Really good football player. So that's one of those where that's more, I think, maybe there's some execution issues in there of getting to the second level, but some of it's scheme. Some of it's keeping a defense off balance. They're able to attack. Um, Some of it is guys not making blocks. And there were a couple plays, not to call guys out. I thought Matthew Jones got blown up a couple times. There was certainly a, a short yardage run where, you know he had to reach a little bit on a D tackle, and the D tackle just beat him and tackled Trevion in the backfield on a short yardage play that mattered. And there were there were a couple other times I thought there I thought Paris didn't get a block mm-hmm. on an edge play where he he sort of the back was for Trevion was forced back inside. Although it was an odd call too, it was like a a little toss like to the boundary with not a lot of room there. Um, and once you don't make a block, it's over. And then the the third thing was. And we talked about it during the game, Nathan. Just so everybody knows, we're talking about this stuff constantly during the game. I have my YouTube TV on, so I'm trying to double-check stuff. We're watching through binoculars, but again, we don't hear what Joel says. I do come back a lot of times, especially when it's Joel. Joel, I think, is really good. Herbie is really good, too. But like, you think you have great analysis. It's like, oh, wait, no. The guy on TV said it four seconds after it happened. Everybody knows this. So I thought Joel was on a lot of this stuff. But I thought we were talking, Nathan, at times, about Trevion chopping his steps a little bit. And sometimes it wasn't his fault. I thought there were two or three that was like, dude, like you just gotta go, man. Yep. There was one where I thought they blocked it up, and there's one backer like on the outside of the play who's a little bit free, but there was a seam, there was a hole in the middle. And if Trevion just goes, it has a chance to be something. And it I felt like he almost saw the outside backer with his peripheral vision and it slowed him down in the backfield and led to a failure of the play when maybe if he just hits it and goes, it has a chance to be something. And I think there was another play I thought where it got tackled because Whipler and Donovan Jackson were at the second level and couldn't hold their blocks at the second level. And it felt like maybe Trey was a little late to the party because he didn't get through the hole quick as he could have if he hits it a little harder and doesn't chop his steps. And the result is the play doesn't pop like it could have. And it looks like, oh, those guys got off blocks. And it's like, well, I think maybe Trey should be out of the house by then. So it's all three. Scheme, right? The defense knows what's coming. Execution at the line of scrimmage by your blockers and also your back at times, not every snap. Because also, by the way, when Trey hits it, you can see what it looks like when Trey hits it. Yeah, 41 yards, had a nine-yarder that was like, bang, that's it but at times also wasn't hitting it. So I'm not trying to take all your work. You can dig in more, but like trying to get an overarching theme of it here. It was a little bit of everything. It seemed
0: like, well, the hesitance that people saw from Trevor Henderson at times earlier this year gets exasperated in a game like this, right? Exasperated or exacerbated. 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 See C- C- in yes. there. Yeah. Uh, and I don't know if this is the one of the ones you were talking about. The first play Ohio State's second possession, where they uh, tipped interception to Zach Harrison. So they get the ball at the Penn State 39. Harrison carries, I'm sorry, Henderson carries, and initially it's blocked all right. And now Henderson only has to make the Will linebacker the miss. But because he kind of gingerly goes into the hole now, Paris Johnson Jr. doesn't hold his block, and the whole thing kind of falls in on him. And I don't even remember what that gained, uh, if anything, but it led to a, a three and out with a, a complete failure on a bubble screen on third and sixth. So the, it's just kind of, it's, it's circular today. But yeah, I, I thought there were, again, by my read and other people might grade it differently, I thought there were two plays where it was clearly that he was just dragging a little bit. Now, again, I've seen plays over the last two weeks where the way that he lets a block develop gets him more yards. Like he he does read that well sometimes, but there's other times where he just bounces a little, and against a good defense, you're gonna, it's going to cost you. And we were talking about this during the game a little bit too, where sometimes your first look at it is you see him buckle like that, and you're like, man, he's got to attack that. But the problem, the reason he buckles is because he the hole that's supposed to be there is now occupied by the offensive lineman that's getting shoved back into him, and now what yes. that you can't just run head first. You can't be like, boy, he drove that school bus into a brick wall, but at least he did it at full speed. Like you got to, I understand why he, his knees buckling, tries something else, but usually it's too late. The play falls apart. So both things have to be better. Neither one of those things were good enough consistently against Penn state.
1: And it's hard because it is that there's, there are running backs who have a certain style that is a very patient style and Mm -hmm. let blocks get set up and then the result can be it looks like he's not hitting holes like well he's he's making a, a choice here and i did think i don't know if this is the one you're talking about there was one i think it was wide, like a wide zone play to the right and if you watch the browns nick chubb destroys people and cutback lanes on wide zone where you're letting something develop and then you see on the back side here comes the lane and you hit it and, you, and you're gone i thought there was a play where it was there and right as travion maybe could have hit that cutback lane he fell And if he hits it, I thought it was blocked, not perfectly, but pretty well. And if he, it might've been there. And if he hits that, it might be 25 yards. And instead he sort of like tripped or slipped a little bit right at the point where he put his foot in the ground.
0: There was a play on the first series where uh, they were in uh, getting near the red zone and, uh, or red area as Ryan Day likes to refer to it. Um, And they ran that kind of stretch play to the right. And, that was one of the plays where I thought Jones was getting blocked in the backfield a little bit. Trevin had tried to cut it back inside, but it now it's now it's maybe up to interpretation. Did he have nowhere to go, or did he just not hit that hard enough? I I don't know. There was also another play where they ran outside to the left, and Paris Johnson got blocked back, and Henderson stepped on him, tripped, and and fell down there. Like yes. there were some other plays that were just like right. It's just a whisker. But um, when you're getting blown up on enough other plays, then those kind of get amplified.
1: And it is uh, sometimes on those, like you're trying to really hit something, but you're not just plowing into the line. So when those don't work, they're zero or minus, as opposed to like, oh, you know, if you're just running between the tackles and putting your head down, even if it doesn't work, you might get two. And, and some of the ones that didn't work, like really didn't work because that's sort of the nature of the play. Um, I, I guess I can look right now. Like, did, what did what was your overall impression, sort of, of the offensive line? Like, what did you come away thinking well, about these the,
0: that front five for Ohio State? I mean, there were some good moments, um, but did you look at the Pro Football Focus grades by any chance? Did, did always... you
1: Did you look at them? I
0: did. Yes. Because I'm,
1: I'm. You did look at them? Yes. Because I'm pulling them up right this second because I did not look at them. Well, so if I, you have it, go ahead.
0: I looked at them after going back through here you know Matt Jones they graded him at 68 and i have a a pff source that i talk to sometimes and i was like hey what's what was that about and and just to get some context on that because i i'm not an x's and o's guru these guys have studied it way more and i i appreciate what they're doing and he said a gr- a number like that is not only that you did your job competently like 60 is usually like the baseline for like you were adequate, like you just, you were fine. But 68 is more like you did your job well. And so that maybe is accounting for some of the things you were talking about of what I see is a guy getting pushed back into the hole, a more keen eye, and I can go back and look at it again. I was I was doing this relatively fast and not spending a lot of time on each play, but like the next guy, somebody maybe looks at that and says, no, the numbers were, there was nothing he could do there maybe. Like, the numbers were too much for one guy to block. So if you take away a few of these and and put it on that, I I, I suppose that, that swings it a little bit. But it just seemed like he was pretty consistently getting shoved back into the backfield. And that a lot of the negative plays where Trevon Henderson was taken down for a loss were a, a, a guy just going through. Matthew Jones and getting Henderson or redirecting Henderson out of where the play was designed and somebody else getting the tackle. That was, I thought, the most repeated offensive line problem, but there were offensive line things that looked good too. I mean, Donovan Jackson, when you let him get out and pull and lead a play, some nice things can happen, man. And Luke Whipler too, there were a couple of plays where in tandem those guys go out and, and make things happen um i thought delon jones actually did a pretty good job and there were some other plays that when ohio state schemed it up and had kate stover you run on the the to the strong side and stover and jones handle the edge whipler takes out the middle and now matt jones is going into the second level that worked really yep. well on multiple occasions so but i mean teams are going to see that and they'll scheme off of that like you can't just assume that's going to be there every game of the year so the other times they have to fix the things that aren't working there has to be just some better uh baseline of performance i think from probably both guards but but jones was the one that, that stood out in this game in in not a good way
1: and that last that last tribune touchdown run like Rossi sealed the edge and Matt Jones yep. pulled yes. Yes. from the right side to the left side and got the other guy. And it's like, okay, you needed two blocks on the edge to get trivia in the head zone and end zone. It was Matt Jones and Rossi who got him. I'm just looking at the PFF grades for this game right here, just to look at the offensive linemen. Overall offensive grades for the offensive linemen in this game 64 snaps for all the starters on the offensive line. Dewan Jones, six, 75.4. Luke Whippler, 73.6. Matthew Jones, 70. Paris Johnson Jr. sixty seven point four, Donovan Jackson fifty eight point two, and then run blocking grades: Dwan seventy one point nine, Matthew Jones seventy two point one, Luke Whippler sixty eight point nine. The guy who's the guys who had the lowest run blocking grades were Paris fifty nine point one and Donovan Jackson fifty one point seven. So that's the left side of that line that had the lowest grades. There again, it did feel like you know Matt Jones. You're asking you're just you're just asking him to reach on that defensive tackle there. And it's like you fire off the line. If you can't – everybody's slanting one way, and you have to slant that way and get that guy. And he didn't – he just like – he didn't get him. He didn't – he couldn't get to him. He couldn't slide and get his arms out and reach enough to prevent that play um, from happening on that short yardage. And then there was another play where Trevion ran right, and the defensive tackle just chased him down for like a loss of three. And I think it was the, the defensive tackle just like beat Matthew Jones at the Jones at the point of attack and just yep. got to the outside and completely destroyed that play in his zone. So it's one of those. It's like there might have been a couple of plays where it felt like ah, Matt Jones got beat on that play, but then maybe the rest of the time when you're just not noticing things, he's kind of doing what he's supposed to do. But there were a couple of high profile ones where it felt like kind of at the point of attack, Matt Jones did get beaten. Listen, this is a guy who fought his butt off to become a starter. This is not a, this is not a guy who was an instantaneous star on the offensive line so credit to him for like for earning a starting job but also like you know you don't normally put five all-americans out there on an offensive line nathan so great not everybody's gonna be perfect on every play we're not trying to call guys out we're just trying to figure out like this is the thing now i don't know if it's swung has it swung nathan from cornerbacks to the run game like if we're lining up okay what's the premise Ohio State is probably, or at least possibly, the best team in the country. So that's the beginning of the discussion. And now the discussion is, let's list the things that might keep them from winning the national title. If two weeks ago that was cornerbacks play, is is number one now the run game? Is that where we are?
0: I still think cornerback play is number one. And we didn't break down the defense in what we rewatched in this one, but like Parker Washington kind of had a heyday. There was some bad tackling outside. I still think that might be number one because really the overarching thing that you come away with from this run game rewatch is like Ohio State, Marvin Harrison Jr. and CJ Stroud will be why Ohio State wins the national championship. Like those guys are really freaking good. Marvin Harrison had 10 catches on Saturday, all for first downs. Wow.
1: And I will say, again, when you try to figure out – and I have it on my list. I really want to do it before the Michigan game. I don't know if it will happen. If Ohio State makes the playoff, maybe it will be a playoff project. But just rewatch every game and then break down run yardage and pass yardage by, like, how they think about it. So the the idea is, like, if you scramble and run, that's actually pass yardage because it's a pass play, and it's how you are attacking the defense on a pass play. And if your quarterback runs for yardage, that's really – you think of that in the passing game. And then – anything like a bubble screen is part of the run game and RPOs are part of the run game because you, the offensive line on, a, on an RPO run pass option blocks it up like a run play. They're not dropping bass and back in pass protection. So there's the, the chance that that could be a run play there. The defense sort of has to be prepared to stop the run. And then if you throw off of that instead, CJ reads it, he doesn't give it. He throws it instead. Ryan Day still thinks of that as a run play because it was blocked as a run play. And it was sort of in the mind of the defense as a run play. So I will say some of the bubbles were RPOs. I, it's like some of them weren't. There was one, I think one of the ones that worked better was an RPO, but clearly an RPO, it was the play that set up the Mayan touchdown run that Marvin Harrison caught a little quick hitter over the middle down to the four yard line. Yep, That was an RPO. And so it's like, oh, well that's part of the run game. It's like, what's your best run play? Our best run play is throw it to Marvin Harrison Jr. <laughs> But it's like, well, what's happening there? CJ's reading that in the moment. They're blocking it up as a run play. Penn State's attacking the run. The middle of the field's open. Bing, bang, boom. There it is to Marvin Harrison Jr. There's a 20-yard, free yardage play, it feels like. And if you had handed it to Mayan Williams and he had run 20 yards, people would have been like, yes, look at the run game. But they think of that as the run game, and it was 20 yards. And it set up a touchdown. So that's like... I think if we dig in, right, when we, I want to know what, like, so this is what the statistical pass versus run yardage is. Here's what the, like, true run yardage versus true pass yardage. I do think it will be better when you factor in some of those RPOs. Years ago, Ohio State had real trouble with that. I think they're pretty decent at that right now. So when you factor that in, it's like, oh, yeah, we threw it to Marvin nine times, and then we, like, ran it with Marvin, air quotes, like, RPO'd it with Marvin three times. And they all gained eighteen yards, it's like, okay, well then you're fine.
0: Yeah, it's so, I don't know. So I made a big deal about the lack of explosive plays against Iowa last week and being something that was indicative of how bad the offense was kind of off that day, or how much how much Iowa threw them off, you know, had some success. And twenty five percent of Ohio State's offensive plays were explosives against Penn State. Fifteen out of sixty. So that's kind of a big number. That's their biggest number of the year. That's the biggest percentage of explosive plays they've had at any game this year. But only three were on the on the ground, which is the second lowest. They only had one on the ground against Iowa that was an explosive play. And they had three against Penn State. And I bet you can remember all three of them. Because one was the 11-yard scramble that C.J. Stroud had on third and 18. One is the 41-yard play that you wrote a lot about, uh, the Trevor Henderson touchdown run. And then like the next-to-last play of the game, almost – uh, the 11 yard run that Trevon Henderson had there. So you had the one that w- where Penn State just gave it to them, and then two in the fourth quarter. That was the explosive run plays for Ohio State in this game. So I, I, going back to the little like back and forth you and I had after the game on Saturday night, they they do have to run the ball better in a conventional way, because I think, and and they have to do it not by. They have to also, at some point, be able to do it without scheming a bunch of stuff up. I think you have to, at some point, be able to line up in a way that people think you could plausibly be passing out of it and then run the ball and have it get a positive gain.
1: Okay, so, that, so let me ask you that question, though, because, again, we're watching again, and Joel Klatt's talking about this the whole, whole game. Like, Penn State is, is- – trying to stop the run, just like Iowa's trying to stop the run. Now, they didn't have as I think it felt like Penn State didn't have as many guys in the box every time, but they did have safeties who were willing to get downhill and get into holes and make things difficult. So what, what makes, in the end, like what makes you say that they do have to run it to be successful? Because, I, as I said before, and this sort of reinforced it for me, I think running it unsuccessfully perhaps could trip them up because they would still have drives. They would have drives where it was like run on first down, not much run on second down, not much. And now it's third down. It's like, what are you like? Why, why did you even just do what you did? But they also had one where I think early, was it even the first series? It was like a bubble screen. That was awful. A run play that didn't work. And it's like, great. Now it's third and long. What are you going to do? And they threw like a 35 yard pass to Marvin down the sideline where he just ran past this guy. It's like, Oh, you're going to do that. It's fine so it's so in like in totality i really the thing i kind of said after the game of like maybe you just stop running it i agree you can't run it unsuccessfully but if the two choices of that are run it better or don't run it at all i really do think they could creep towards don't run it at all and i don't No. Now, again, if you're throwing it successfully in part because Iowa and Penn State were still interested in stopping the run, if you just abandon the run, maybe that changes that equation. But also a lot of what we talked about, even with the bubbles, is like, okay, are you doing something that's, quote, failing to set up something else that will succeed? If the run game is not working, but it's working just enough for Iowa and Penn State to still be interested in stopping it, and then the end, the opposite side of that is Marvin Harrison Jr. is unstoppable every time you throw him the ball, but you really do think it's still better to throw him the ball 18 times a game and not 40. I don't know. Like I, just, I really don't know if they need to run it better. I really don't. I don't know.
0: I, I still say that teams need to respect the run. I think that's what makes play-action possible. They didn't see it. Didn't see a ton of play-action in this game, really, partially because they weren't running the ball very well. And then you have to... Uh, but, you can't, but I, I do think there's a, there the a big
1: analytics conversation about whether you have to run it for play-action to work, because there is still some part of play-action that if a quarterback even yeah. half fakes a handoff, a linebacker takes a half-step forward and freezes. It Fair is enough. part of the human condition, even if that run game is six carries for minus three yards to that point. He still instinctually bites. Go ahead.
0: Fair enough. And and again, to maybe give you some fodder, since we talked so much about the matchups that Ohio State lost in this game, a lot of talk going into this game about Ohio State matching up with Joey Porter Jr. Ohio State won that matchup. I got that they kicked his butt pretty well. Like the, the huge game that Marvin Harrison Jr. had, there was a, a big uh, pass interference call that Julian Fleming drew off of Porter. Uh, I, th- I thought they beat him, and it was one of the reasons they won this game.
1: And I did think that I went back and looked at like the, I think there were two targets of Marvin that were not complete. And one was the deep shot where I think, I think it was another third down where they had been like sort of like unsuccessful, unsuccessful. Here's the third down play. If I went back and like freeze framed it and took a picture of the screen, the ball is two inches over Marvin Harrison jr's fingers. It is. It was as close to being as the complete a completion and not being a completion. As you could get. And again, he had just hurt his shoulder. And I just think if his shoulders felt 100%, maybe he makes that catch. But it was even closer to hitting than I imagined it was. And like that's when you look at like failures in the passing game, that's like the closest thing you would almost find to a failure in the passing game. And it was like, oh, he missed what would have been a 40 yard gain by two inches. And like everything else worked. So
0: did you also notice on the the silent audible slant, by the way, I think there might've been one of those earlier in the game too, where Stroud and Harrison looked at each other and then Stroud or Harrison changed his stance. He had his right foot out and they looked at each other and there was like a thing. And then Harrison put his left foot in and then cut in to, to I think run a different route. I'd have to ask him about it later, but I, I suspect that that might've been a similar change, but on the one that you, uh, that he talked about after the game. I wrote a thing about it for Sunday morning. Stroud threw that ball through like two different Penn state defenders going like, like making an O with their arms. Like it was like a, through a tunnel to him. They had to feed it through two guys to get it to him. And it was pretty close to not being a completion, no matter what they did with their, their nonverbal communication.
1: And you can see CJ like lifted his arm and pointed at Marvin a little bit. And Marvin, like, raised his finger and like acknowledged like the, I see your point. We're together mm-hmm. here. Let's do this. And then, like you said, sort of adjusted himself and made that throw. But again, and and again, that's one of those things that's tough right now that's third and 10. They've got to throw it there. You've clearly, they're going to throw it. They're not going to run it, but that does happen, which is why sometimes throws on do or die situations are tough because you do everything right. And then, a defensive lineman tips the ball with his pinky. And it's like, well, that would have worked, except you tipped the ball with your pinky. And I'm trying to throw it through a lane here and throw it through an alley. But guess what? CJ Stroud's pretty good at that. So, okay. I, I hope that informs you a little bit about the run game. Here's the thing that's going to be difficult, Nathan. I don't know that we're going to get great public answers from Ohio State on this stuff. Because anything, if I said, hey, just give up on the run, right? Come on, what are we doing here? Like Ryan Day is going to push back hard. Yeah. Against any idea that they can just abandon the run and throw their way to a national title, because it's been the thing they've talked about all off season. And again, there's probably there certainly is at least some truth to that. But I think he may he would say something, and then I again, let's come back if and see CJ Throut, Stroud throw sixty three passes against Georgia as Ohio State destroys Georgia in a semifinal, and be like, yeah, no. They didn't run it at all. and It didn't matter. So I do think they may walk a walk. That is, we're just going to throw to win. We have to, that's what we do well, but they're never going to talk that talk. It's like anti football to say, because they don't want to be, they don't want to be Mike Leach, right? They don't want to be running and gun and crazy stuff. Right. Um, and then to get into the specifics of why it didn't work. And this is not a Ryan day criticism necessarily. He's going to get defensive and he's not going to want to, talk about a lack of execution by individual players and he's going to get defensive about like your play calls. Did, did you do something that let Penn state attack you in the run game too much? Did you try like, so it's, and and it doesn't mean we're not, we're not going to ask. I don't think we're going to have a very illuminating public conversation about the run game. And so we're just going to have to delve into what happened. We're going to bring in Lance Risland and help his expertise help us. We'll try to ask players about it, but I don't think the conversation is going to be elevated much beyond "we've got
0: to do better." Yeah, he's definitely not going to call out individual guys, and, and we only want to do that to a certain extent because we don't necessarily always know everything that went into why how a play was called and why it was called, and sometimes somebody else didn't do something and it looks bad on you. So, uh, but uh, th- no, he's not going to call out individual players. And the other thing is, now they get to go into this. I mean, let's call it what it is. Like the next two weeks, they get to kind of go into the um, shop and work on this stuff and 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 focus a lot on stuff like this. Because like Northwestern, pretty terrible. Indiana, not good. And they've got to be better, I think, for Maryland. I think they want to be able to control the ball and control the clock and make sure they're putting up points against Maryland if if Tagovailoa is back. But these next two weeks are where they can work some of this stuff out.
1: And just to finish with this, overall PFF grades for the entire offense, just for some context, for the year, their entire offensive grade, not breaking down, run blocking, pass blocking, receiving, whatever. Mayan Williams, one. Marvin Harrison, junior, two. C.J. Stroud, three. Luke Whipler, four. Ameka Ibuka, five. DeWan Jones, six. Donovan Jackson, Seven. Mitch Rossi, eight. I'm going to jump over a couple guys who don't play much. Paris Johnson, nine. Travion Henderson, 10. Cade Stover, 11. Matthew Jones, 12. Julian Fleming, 13. Right? So if you said like, hey, do you think Cade Stover is like not in the top 10 of like best offensive players? We probably wouldn't wouldn't agree with that. Matthew Jones is the lowest graded offensive lineman, but it is not in a bad zone. He's still in a good zone. And it is like not like ridiculously far behind Paris Johnson Jr. So there's nobody on this offense Nathan when you look at the PFF grades that are like not doing their job all the time. This is a very very good offense filled with good players.
0: Yeah. And I remember like 2020 I remember Pete Warner had a not good PFF grade all year at the same time people were like is he the best defensive player on this team? And it was so so those things are hard to reconcile again. It's it's more about the long the, the wide view. But again, this is one thing I did want to mention from the, the, the uh, past from, from the bubble screens, the run block grades for Ohio State's receivers. It was Abuka 53.3. And I checked with my PFF source and he said that usually screens will go down for receivers as the run block grade, if that makes sense. Yeah. So 53.3 for Abuka, So not good enough. Still, even the one that I'm saying is the one that should be uh, blocking. And then Marvin Harrison, 45 5, Stover, 47-4, Fleming,
1: 32.6. Okay.
0: Guess what's going to happen? Brian Hartline's on their butts <laughs> this week. I think like, so. You know, yeah.
1: Like, you know who doesn't think, hey, you guys catch it like crazy. Yeah. I mean, that's
0: enough. I don't care if you, if you don't make your blocks. You know who doesn't think that? Brian Hartline. But I think, I I don't think this should be an overreaction necessarily, though, because I think this is what's supposed to happen over the course of a year. You finally get on the field against another good team. They kick your butt in one way. That does not mean that is now your identity. You got beat in one thing one day, and I know it's two weeks in a row for the entire run game. We're just talking about the receiver blocking here. Like, and now you go, the same thing with the corners where they, on the bye week, supposedly they went in and rep stuff. I think that's what you're going to see. Some extra attention to this the next two weeks for a Ohio State. I would still be giving them some benefit of the doubt that uh, exactly what you're saying, that Heartline gets under their uh, helmets a little bit about this. Is that, a, is that even a phrase? Did I just make something up? Uh, gets gets into them a little bit, and the next, you know, we might be talking in two weeks about how, oh, just see how well Julian Fleming blocked on that play. And just context, right? I do think, at least I still do,
1: when you talk about receiver blocking, the the guy who's sort of like the gold standard of modern – Ohio State receiver play is Evan Spencer because Urban Meyer talked about it all the time and Evan Spencer blew up two people on Ezekiel Elliott's playoff clinching touchdown run because Evan Spencer like got after it Evan Spencer's run blocking grade in 2014 was 83.0 which is like really high like really reflects that his overall offensive grade was 58.9 because no offense to Evan Spencer and he would agree with this he was not Marvin Harrison Jr when you threw him the ball which is okay it was not my, like that's not what he did best and so they had a great mix right the three receivers that played in 14 you had an ultimate deep threat in Devin Smith you had an ultimate number 1 receiver all over the field and Michael Thomas and then your third receiver was like destroying people in the run game was destroying people as a blocker like all the time and also through a touchdown pass against Alabama. And if you needed to do stuff, Evan Spencer was a consummate football player. He was not as skilled in the catching and running part of being a receiver as these other guys. So it's hard to be good at absolutely everything. Do they have an Evan Spencer right now as a blocker in the pass game? Like probably not, but they have a bunch of guys like, all right, Julian yeah. Fleming missed a block, right? Well, guess what? Against Iowa, he caught a 79 yard touchdown pass, right? Marvin Harrison Jr. Missed a block. Do, do you see what he's doing? Cade Stover missed a couple blocks on the edge. Did you see what Cade Stover did inside when they stopped asking him to do that? So that's the balance of all this stuff. It is the high standard of Ohio State, and that's why we talk about it this way, because the context is probably the best team in the country. Then the list is what could conceivably, not even guaranteed to, but conceivably hold them back. And that's where I think this run game discussion is right now, Nathan. Like, maybe does it could it be better? Ryan Day thinks right. it needs to be better. Is it disastrous? That's what we're trying to figure out.
0: Again, it's it's all a progression. So like when we saw it not work against Iowa, we're like, "Well, what is that going to look like if they have the same problems against Penn State?" And we found out, but we don't think Penn State's a playoff team. So now take forward what happened against Penn State against a playoff team. Now what does it look like? That's the, I think the thing you're chasing an unknown a little bit if you're Ohio State, but you know it has to be better than what it was Saturday for when that challenge comes.
1: Okay, so that was some good football talk time for what you're watching, what you're eating, what you're thinking. And we'll do it next on Buckeye talk. Doug Maurice and Nathan Baird back. This is kind of the end of football stuff. I have a lot of Renaissance fair thoughts this week. So if you're not interested in the Renaissance fair, maybe this isn't for you. Uh, I will start off with what you're watching. And I will say for me, it is I'm tweaking it because it was not what I watched. It's what I listened to because I did drive home all the way from Penn state back to Columbus on a uh, Saturday night, which means I got home at three o'clock in the morning. So I was sort of driving down the highway in the middle of the night when there's not many people on the road and you know, you're going and you're sliding along there. And that always to me is like uh it's kind of like, a, like an unreal kind of feeling, like it's a little spooky, and it's not just because it's Halloween, but it's like it's you and out there in the middle of nowhere, and you have your high beams on because there's nobody around, and it feels like maybe you're the only person left in the world. And it's just like a everybody's known that experience when you're driving on the highway late at night, um, and then you have to have the music that you listen to. Because I don't listen to music that much, I mostly only listen to podcasts. But when I was out there, Nathan driving home at two o'clock in the morning, I wanted the music. Right, I wanted the late night on the highway music. Mm -hmm. And so I, you know, I'm just like kind of curious. Like I think probably everybody kind of has their go to songs. Like I wouldn't listen to that song on my phone, at you know through my radio. I know how to plug it in and do that thing. I have trouble with it sometimes, but I wouldn't do that like at five o'clock driving to like in traffic. But at that time, so. I did drop in a little uh, Don't Stop Believin', you know, I, I thought that was good. I did a little uh, In the Air Tonight, which is, I think, a really good one for that. And then this is like my own personal thing because this is a song and I'll just, this. it was the first time that I ever got uh, drunk in my life was my freshman year of college. My college has like a big spring party and that's like, that's what it is. They do it every year. And so that was the first time I did that. And they had bands come in and there was this band that came in and it was like a, you know, a small to medium sized band. It was called, their name was Big Head Todd and the Monsters. So I yeah. listened to them that day as a freshman, I was kind of out of it and, uh, and I'd never heard them before. And then like that music like connected with me. And so like, that is like a, you know how you get connections to music. So there's a song that they have that's called dinner with Ivan. And, uh, there's a phrase in that song that says, welcome to the wild world brother. Sometimes it's going to rain on you. And it's like, I think that it might be pretty close to like my 12 word, like encapsulation of what I think of life. Welcome. It's probably going to rain now. So, and that is like a good, it's a little bit more jam bandy than I normally listen to. But that is one of my, that's like one of my go-to one o'clock in the morning on the highway with the high beams. Nobody else is around. And I'm screaming, welcome to the wild world, brother. Sometimes it's going to rain on you. So if you can find it on Apple Music or something, I think it is on there. Dinner with Ivan is the name of that song. I would just direct you towards that. Has to be you have to be in the right mood at a certain time, but I very much believe like that's what music is, right? It's not all music all the time for everything, but like I hope everybody has their late night driving songs, and I certainly was taking advantage of that on Saturday
0: night. Yeah, when I was in college, and I worked at the Chicago Tribune. I was like one of the part time call takers inside in high schools. Like people, we'd have people out calling in stuff, um, and we'd compile them. And so when I was going home for a weekend or whatever, or for a few days on break, I would still work Friday, Saturday there and then drive home late Saturday night back to central Illinois. So a couple hours down. And I always back then I didn't have a CD player, but I had CDs, but I didn't have one in my car. And so I was limited to like what I had, what CDs I had taped onto a tape. And I was a Mm. big fan of Soundgarden from the nineties. The and so like that, that's those like the uh, bad motor finger and super unknown. Those two albums to me are like that. That's like my late night driving down black highways um, overnight music. Yeah.
1: You got to have it. I sure. I assume everybody has it. If you've got them, you want to text them or tweet them to us. We maybe we'll make a Buckeye talk late night driving playlist. Actually we'll make a forget the, maybe let's make a Buckeye talk late night driving playlist. So if you want to send in suggestions from the Buckeye talk audience, we'd love to hear it. Uh, all right. Nathan, what are you eating? Oh, no, no, no. What are you watching? I guess because you listen to other... You actually might have watched something. You That was what your listening was. We can't do what you're listening. listening. My my watching was a listen. But you still have a watch. So
0: what is your watch? And I listen to a lot of podcasts, including a crap load of Doug Lameries as I was going East. I was like listening to the Rants pod. I was listening to the Betting pod. I think I might have found you on some other pod to hear you talk about Kirk and Brian. So... Yeah, I had a lot of Doug on my way out there. I I have not watched. Be careful. You can can overdose. You can overdose on Doug. Be careful. Believe me. I know. I think I've built up a pretty good tolerance, though, unfortunately. (laughs) (laughs) Like, like, how did you drink those three bottles of Jack? Like, well, it's a problem. It's a good He'd problem to have, I guy, guess. Yeah, <laughs> um, or a bad or bad power to have. Uh, I have not watched a lot of like new things this week. I was going to bring up the World Series. You grew up a Phillies fan. The Phillies are in the World Series. I imagine you have not watched a pitch of the World Series, perhaps, unless you got to watch some Friday night. Uh, I was going to, so Friday night when you've got a baby, you feel bad about leaving your wife home alone with the baby, and she had some friends coming into town this weekend, so that helped. But the you feel a little less bad about it because for yourself, it means you get to go to bed very early and nobody's going to wake you up until you want to be woken up by your alarm. But so I started watching the world series. I had to do some work and it's like the Astros go up five, nothing on Friday night. And I'm like, well, I'll just be able to shut this down early. I'll just wait till Verlander gives up his first hit perfect game will be over and uh, I'll go to bed. But then the Philly scored like three and then they came all the way back and won. And I stayed up and watched the whole thing and got like no sleep Friday night into Saturday, had to get up super early to beat the traffic into Penn state. So, uh, but then last night did the same thing, like watched, found the re because I, I couldn't watch world series on Saturday. So I wanted to catch up on, on Saturday and watch that. Like I didn't get to hardly watch any of the baseball playoffs. I'm a big baseball fan. It's my favorite sport. So just been catching up on that this week. And it's been a couple of pretty good games, especially Friday. Friday night was a good game. Big game for the Phillies.
1: No, I. So when I was, as I mentioned, when I was seven and the Phillies won the World Series, they beat the Astros in the, mm-hmm. in the NLCS. 1980. And that, that to me was, I know it was a great series. Mike Scott, oh man, those Astros were good. So like the Astros, Phillies, like kind of mean something to Little Dougie, but I'm just like, I just, mm-hmm. the, the thing that means something to me, it's funny, is I think I, like, I got, when I covered the Phillies, they had like a giveaway of a Jimmy Rollins t shirt that I just, it was like at my press box seat and I took it and my oldest daughter still wears it. Hmm. So she wears like a Jimmy Rollins t-shirt, like in her rotation of clothes. And then Jimmy Rollins is like on the, whatever the TBS like hmm. pregame and postgame show. So like I paused it and like made her look and be like, you know, that shirt that you wear that just says like Jimmy Rollins stolen base company or something. I like, he's a real person. He's not like Santa Claus. That's him. He He's a human. And he's like, Forty now, yeah. But so that's that's what resonates with me. Um. All right. So World Series stuff. What did you What did you eat anything while you watched the World Series? What you been eating?
0: Um. So I'd been eating a bunch of crap last week, especially over the weekend covering the game. Have we talked about brassica on here before? Have I brought I it don't up think before? So. It's uh, it's like a Middle Eastern Chipotle sort of. And by Middle Eastern, I don't mean like Indian food, but I just mean like it's like. Falafel and the, what I get there Shorma? is the what I no what I get there yeah. a lot is the brisket. It's like falafel, brisket, or mm. chicken. I think are the three proteins. But nice. you go in and get these little sandwiches. But last night, my wife and I were like, "Well, what do we want to get? We don't want to cook anything." But I had had so much like processed fast food, just eating so much McDonald's and stuff lately, uh, because I'm on the go or I'm trying to stop somewhere and do some work and have a quick thing, and I know I can get Wi Fi there. So Brassica was our choice because you get real food there. And they actually have really good fries, too, with this, like, special sauce, they call it, that's really good. Uh, But we had never had it until we moved here, and there's one in Bexley just up the road. So we go there pretty frequently, and it's become, like, our favorite, like, fast, casual choice. Probably between – if we had a choice between brassica and chipotle, we're probably almost always picking brassica.
1: Nice. The expansion of fast, casual eating choices is just spectacular. Mm -hmm. What a time to be alive. I'm not even joking. Cause it's like, ah, fast food. I don't really want fast food, but I don't want to sit down Yeah, and I don't want to wait, but I don't just want a burger and fries. Like, can you fill that gap? And like 50 chains yep. have been like,
0: yes, we can, we can fill it in a million different ways. And what, what a world it is. And I think Brass um, so is locally person- owned by the way. So I, I, I think it's a Columbus thing. I can't remember what the, which company it is, but I think it's locally owned. So I, I think there's some elsewhere in the Midwest, but, That's the other good thing about it is you're not, it's not just a national corporation.
1: Yeah. All right. So the thing that I is eating is I didn't actually eat it, but my thinking thing is going to be about the Ohio Renaissance Festival, which the last day of it was Sunday. And my daughter and I had been planning to go. We tried to go. It's like from the first weekend, it's like from Labor Day till the end of October. So it's two months and we had never gone before and we really wanted to go. That's my daughter, my youngest daughter and I, that's what we kind of do. We kind of go do crazy stuff like that. So we tried to go before and we couldn't and then just she's in marching band and I have football and like the only day that we could go was the last day was Sunday because the Browns and Bengals are playing Monday night. So that was why I drove home through the night Saturday because I wanted to be home so we can get up and leave and go Sunday morning and we had never gone and I didn't have an expectation necessarily, but it far exceeded both of our expectations. It was unbelievable, and it was enhanced, I think, because it was Halloween, so there's all these employees of the Ohio Renaissance Festival who are walking around in Renaissance gear, but then a lot of the the patrons were dressed up, so it was like you're just walking around, and then people are in sort of fantasy-themed gear, like somebody was dressed up as Ricky Bobby, and somebody was dressed up as Boba Fett, but there were a lot of people with, there was a guy, like a a large man, maybe a 400-pound man, who was wearing like, furry pants and like suspenders and no shirt and like the complete head covering of like a mean looking steer with horns. Like he was a mythical creature, just like walking around a lot of people like dressed up like as fairies and different like mythical thing of this medieval thing. And there are probably like 80 permanent buildings there that are permanent structures. And you just do this giant loop and there's just like shops and restaurants and odd things happening. And then there's probably like 15 different stages where different people are singing and doing plays and trapeze artists. And then in the middle, they have like a big jousting field and we saw two guys joust and they rode their real horses in armor at each other with like the long jousting poles and rammed into each other. And the way the poles were designed, I guess they were wood or something that if like, if you hit the guy's shield, that's how you got a point, but a piece of your, hole broke off and that was the signifier but how often do you get to see people joust and then they had falcons there and owls and they were flying around all over the place like i know i'm sure maybe it's become more popular because of the whole game of thrones thing but like it was awesome it was incredibly fun and that's my thinking but the eating is the big turkey legs because i do think i said to my daughters like well to me we're gonna go to this renaissance festival and the two things i'm that are in my head are jousting and big turkey legs. So I do not partake of the big turkey legs. I know you can get them at a lot of places, not just Renaissance Festival. I like white meat turkey. I like a nice turkey. I like, I love Thanksgiving. I don't want to eat the leg. The way it's presented like that is a big old turkey leg enticing to you because I do enjoy watching other people walk around with a big giant turkey leg gnawing on that thing. But to me, it is not appetizing. Where are you on big giant turkey legs?
0: I've never been a leg guy for, for Turkey. Uh, like my mom is the one at Thanksgiving that always wants the leg. And I know I have friends who are all about the giant Turkey leg. I think you can get it. I remember I used to go to, um, pitchfork music festival in Chicago and I think you would, could get them there. I think it was a big deal. Um, and, or like taste of Chicago used to have that sort of thing, but not, not really my thing either. I think it would be fine, but I think it's the, it's the walking around with the giant log of meat. Indefinitely, that would yeah. turn me off of it.
1: Oh, would turn you off because I would enjoy, I would enjoy walking around with a log of meat. I just don't want to consume it. I want to hold it. I want to hold a turkey's leg, and it feels like because it feels like you 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 conquered it. You've conquered the turkey. Like what more? What better way of conquering someone than to rip its leg off, right? And then consume it. That's like the ultimate sign of of conquering. So, um, all right. So that was my eating, and then again, the thinking is just I. It did not make me want to dress up in medieval outfits or, or fantasy outfits and go walk around. But I loved watching people be super passionate about that and get super into it. And I made it more fun for us how super into it. So many people were. And the best thing that we did, they had a booth where you dunked your hand in wax and then they cut the wax mold off your hand. And you had, I'll show you. Oh, I'll show you. So you wind up with a wax mold of your hand and it was $5. I couldn't believe how cheap it was. If you wanted multiple colors, it was more, but they had a hard time. My first mold would not come off my hand. And they said it's because my knuckles were too big. And also I had bent my hand to make it look scary. And I could feel as we're trying to like pull it off. It's like, this is not going to work. So the second time I didn't bend my hand as much, but they still said I was the most difficult person all day. To get the wax off their hand. I think mostly because it's children Mm. (laughs) and I'm a full grown man. Right. And so, but look at this, this is my wax, purple wax mold of my creepy hand. And it did crack and they kind of had to glue it in one spot, but I think it looks creepy as like, crazily creepy and it's my real hand and it was 5 bucks and how often can you get a wax mold of your hand i'd never seen that before what a bargain it made me want to go back in medieval time so i will if you're interested i will send the wax mold of my hand but i it is just a 10 out of 10 1000 out of 1000 review for the Ohio Renaissance Festival it's down towards Dayton it was about an hour and 20 minutes um probably like an, from downtown Columbus it's probably like an hour 10 an hour 5 So like very doable. And even if you're in Cleveland and you just make a day of it, whatever, like it's just like I couldn't believe how good it was. And it made me mad that I'd never been there before because that's kind of right up my alley for that kind of stuff. And if you're if you're at all, if you're at all peaked and again, it's over for this year, they have a Christmas village later in the year, but it's over for this year. It's in the fall. If any of this sounds possibly interesting to you, make a plan to go next September or October. And if it doesn't sound interesting to you at all, I still think it's possible you would find it interesting, even if you don't like it. Because I also don't like to go do things. Like I always say, you got to go do stuff. And even if it's like a, even if it's a bad story, at least it's a story. So then it's like, hey, what'd you think of the Renaissance Festival? And you could be like, I hated it. It was nuts, but at least you experienced it. So I just, it's great. 28 bucks to get it. So a little pricey, but you got to plan it, right? plan it out. But would you like the Renaissance Festival, Nathan? Does that sound like it's possibly something you yeah. would be intrigued
0: by? I, I've never been to one, but that does sound like fun. I assume you're not going to bend three of the fingers down on that and send it to the Iowa football offices. No, you,
1: you definitely, my daughter and I had a long discussion about whether we should make our hand be flipping people off as we dip it in the wax. Because that was what one of the examples was. Mm. You definitely had that option. And in the end we chose not to.
0: I think so. it would be hard though if you can't if you were having trouble with like if with with it flexing. Like I don't know how you just have one finger. It would be yeah. hard to get out. So if, if you're a fully yeah. grown adult. Little kids, you could probably do one of, of them flipping somebody off. Yeah. So that makes it even better. What I've been thinking about is Murphy's Law and as it pertains to my ability to successfully rent a car to help cover this football team. So I, I did it a couple weeks ago for the Michigan state trip and I showed up and there aren't really good options close to me. I show up and the place says, okay, well we have your reservation, but there are no cars here. It's going to be like 20 minutes at least before there are any cars here. And I was like, forget it. Like, I don't know what 20 minutes actually means. I'll just drive. So I just drove myself and we get, we rent cars, not because we don't have cars, but because it's actually usually cheaper for the company To rent a car and pay for gas, than it is for them to pay the mileage, and it's not any wear and tear on our own vehicle. So this time, I rented from another place. Thought I did, showed up there, and they did not have a reservation for me because I think I forgot to actually complete the reservation. So then, fortunately, they still had cars. So I did rent a car from them successfully, and then stopped for lunch uh, halfway through my drive around St. Clairsville. Little shout out to St. Clairsville for those of you who. Might be around from around there. Got back on the interstate and immediately something hit my car, like a projectile of some kind. I don't know if it was a rock or what, but it hit the bumper and like I felt it and heard it at the time, but thought, oh, that that didn't sound good, but hopefully it was like underneath. I didn't know. Finished my drive, got to Evansburg, Pennsylvania, got out and looked and there was like a hole in Bumper of the car, where like like a like oh a God. like a twelve year old girl had just like punched a hole in the bumper of the car. So I'm going through a whole hassle now with uh, turning in a damaged rental car.
1: Wow. Sorry. Yeah. Do you get Do you get the rental car insurance?
0: Never. Never. Never have in my life. Yeah. And now you I live with the hole in the bumper. The employers that I've always worked for told you told me not to get it. Yes. But that's usually because you're renting through their preferred vendor or whatever, and I. I I am just now getting up to speed with the rental car policies of Advance Incorporated and Cleveland.com. Do we have policies? Apparently, see. Exactly. I'm gonna f I'm going to i am going to gonna cut out this conversation. Someone who's worked here for low these many years and pass it along to our people and be like, This guy's been renting cars for trips forever and he doesn't know our policies either. So
1: Yeah. No, that's good. I'll testify on your behalf. That's yeah. Okay. I'll be happy to do so. I'll bring my hand. You're going to mess with a hand like this. Look at that. You're going to mess with those big knuckles. All right. That's it for this edition of Buckeye Talk. We like talking about the run game. We like thinking about what the playoff committee is going to do on Tuesday night. Uh, The next podcast you will hear will be on Wednesday. We plan to have that be the rants. And then we'll get ready for this uh, Ohio State-Northwestern game. It's like a 40-point line. It's going to be – it's one of those things. Ohio State beat Iowa by a lot. Iowa beat Northwestern by a lot. Northwestern's terrible. So we'll find stuff to talk about. It will not be much about Ohio State versus Northwestern, although, of course, we'll have our preview pod for later in the week about that. Go read cleveland.com slash OSU. The texts are always there for you if you want to try it at 614-350-3315. For Nathan Baird, I'm Doug Maurice, and that was Buckeye Talk.